One of the most surprising stories in the gospel accounts about the life of Jesus comes in the text that I want us to read for today. Now the reason I think it is surprising is, especially within the Christian tradition, we tend to think of Jesus as a bit passive, very meek and mild, and very calm in his mannerisms and the way he responds. But in this text, we will see Jesus respond, and there's a sense of passion a righteous anger in Jesus. Now, the text that we are going to read today is not actually the traditional Palm Sunday reading. It actually follows immediately after that reading. And so this takes place after all the fanfare, after all the noise and celebration, after the palm branches are waving and crowds are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Jesus immediately does something so significant. All four gospel accounts actually record for us this event. Now, when we read the Bible, it's an important thing to know. Um, yes, and something that takes place in any of the Gospels is important. But if each of the Gospel writers decide to include something, then there is something significant for us to pay attention to in that text. John, out of the four Gospels, is the only one who places it at a different point in the story, which means one of two things. It means possibly it happened twice. Or um, it just fits differently into how John wants to tell the story. Either way, it is an incredibly important event in the life of Jesus. And so we are going to pick up the story in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 12. And so again, Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem. He's entered into Jerusalem. The crowds have been waiting in anticipation. They've been waiting for a king. Now their desires are attached to nationalistic desires, the desires to fight back against, against Rome, for them to have a king who is going to lead them into battle and rescue them. And in the midst of their misplaced expectations, this king comes riding on a donkey. Not on a war horse, but he comes humble. In the fulfillment of the words from the prophet Isaiah. I want to begin with verse 12. This is what Matthew records. Jesus entered the temple area... And drove out all who were buying and selling there. Now let me pause for just a minute because what we know is when we compare this text to Mark, um, we also realize that this actually happens on Monday. So on Sunday, which we celebrate as Palm Sunday, Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on the donkey. The first thing that Mark tells us that he does is he goes to the temple. But when he gets to the temple, it's late, so he actually leaves and comes back the next day. Now, this is significant because when we read this, what Jesus is about to do was premeditated. This wasn't like a spur of the moment. Jesus thought about this. He prayed about it. He wrestled with it. And he comes in knowing exactly what he wants to do. I'll continue. Verse 12. It says, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now picture this not as like just calmly flipping the tables over. Like Jesus is angry. And in his anger he flips over these tables. And then he says in verse 13, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Which raises the question, why is Jesus so upset? Like if Jesus thought about this overnight, if he wrestled with how he would respond and then chooses to still do this, why is this so important to Jesus? In fact, Jesus would know like doing this is going to tick off the religious leaders. 
at this point, once Jesus does this, he knows his death is imminent. But for Jesus, this message is so important. My house will be called a house of prayer. Now, the problem here, though, isn't commerce. It's not like Jesus has a problem with buying and selling the exchange of goods. In fact, people would have been traveling all over to the temple at this time. It is approaching the Passover. Monetary gifts, would have, they would have to exchange and convert their currency in order to buy animals for sacrifices. Nobody would want to bring animals with them and bring them all the way to the temple. It was actually a helpful service. Jesus didn't like where they were doing it. It wasn't that he didn't like the money being exchanged. He just didn't like that it was happening in the temple. Or more accurately, it wasn't even about the temple so much as Jesus didn't like who they were hurting by practicing this in the temple. Now, setting up the money exchange in the temple was certainly convenient if you were Jewish. But it could have easily happened in the markets nearby outside the temple courts. Mark even tells us that when Jesus comes in, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple courts. Jesus shut the temple down. Like Jesus shows up, he flips over the tables, he says what he says, and the temple stops. That's how important this is to Jesus. And the way Jesus explains his actions is by quoting Isaiah. Now what you should know about rabbis in the first century is when they quote something in the Old Testament, they're actually not just quote referencing what they say, they're also referencing what they don't say. Because any of the religious leaders in the temple courts, when they would hear Jesus saying, my house will be a house of prayer, they also have memorized the prophets and they memorized the Hebrew scriptures. So when Jesus says this, they immediately would be brought back to their childhood, memorizing the words of the prophet Isaiah and knowing exactly where that came from and what else the prophet said. The prophet Isaiah says in the same chapter, maintain justice and do what is right. See, Jesus flips over the temples because he needs to proclaim justice. That justice is not happening in that place. Isaiah says, maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. So when Jesus arrives, central to the message and teaching of Jesus, Jesus would say, the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is near. It's the same message that Isaiah is prophesying of. There will be a day when salvation arrives. That righteousness will show up fighting for justice. And then Isaiah says, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. Now this is important when Jesus references my house will be called a house of prayer. Because he includes this phrase for all the nations. When Jesus says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, he is referencing what Isaiah says when he's saying, let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord be excluded. He wants to invite those who are not a part of the Jewish family into the presence of God. He said, that's always been to the plan. In fact, Isaiah says, if they, meaning the foreigners, the outsiders, if they hold fast to my covenant, to them I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial. And a name better than sons and daughters. 
In other words, God was prophesying that even if you are not born into the Jewish family, you are welcomed into the family of God. That no matter how far you are from, no matter what you look like, no matter what your background is, you are welcomed in. As he also says, these I'll bring to the holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called the house of prayer. See, what Jesus wants in that moment as he flips over the tables, he wants the people, he wants the religious leaders to realize that they've turned the temple into something it was never meant to be. God's plan from the beginning was always to invite the outsiders to himself. But something happened in the day of Jesus. In their obsessive waiting for a king, they began to misplace their expectations and want something else. And meanwhile, Jesus is actually in their midst. The king is actually present, and they're looking for the kingdom while missing the king. Creating a system that kicks other people out. And Jesus is there to set things straight. Now maybe, maybe this seemed like just a good ministry strategy. Maybe it was good for their growth. Maybe it made them even some extra money in the temple. But the move by buying and selling where they were doing it, it made it impossible for Gentiles to worship at the temple. At the temple. A Gentile is just another word for somebody who's not Jewish. The temple courts were essentially boxes inside of boxes. And so at that day, the way that the system worked was that each area was for different people. And so the, 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 there was the, the sanctuary and the Holy of Holies is in here, um, and only the priests could go in there. And then there's the inner court, um, which only Jewish men could go there. There's the court of women, um, so Jewish men and women could be there. And then in the outer courts was where you could go if you were a Gentile. If you wanted, as a Gentile, to experience the presence of God, you would be in the outer court area. That is where they have the buying and selling set up. The only space that you could go in if you were a foreigner to experience the presence of God. The temple represented God's presence on earth, where heaven met earth. And the only place that they could go was where all the money was being exchanged and all the buying and selling was happened. The outsiders were forgotten about. And perhaps the... The barriers and the walls and the system seems odd in our culture, but this is also what we find in Jesus, that he is removing those barriers. So I love what happens when Jesus flips the tables. Verse 14 tells us what happens. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. In other words, Jesus is angry, flips over the, the tables, shuts the temple down, and the people who weren't allowed to show up start showing up. They know that something's happening at the temple. And I wasn't invited before, but this, this guy, Jesus, from Nazareth, whoever he is, he's here, and now I'm invited in. He starts healing them. The outcasts start showing up. And that's what we see all throughout the life of Jesus. When Jesus shows up, the people who have been excluded, the people who were forgotten, always get invited in. And then verse 15 tells us even the kids start worshiping. It says in verse 15, but when the chief priests, the teachers of the law, saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, the religious leaders were indignant. They're furious. They're like, this guy comes in, he shuts things down, 
He's healing people and the kids are shouting in worship. How dare he? So the religious leaders say to him, do you hear what the children are saying? See, children in that day have very little value. But what Jesus is actually doing, he's elevating their value. And so Jesus responds to the question, do you hear these children? He's like, yes, have you, like, do you hear them? Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? So there are two really important dynamics at play here in these events. Jesus comforts the excluded and he warns the religious. In quoting Isaiah as he's cleansing the temple, Jesus is including those who are typically excluded. And celebrating the worship of kids, he's elevating the value of those who were devalued. When the temple gets shut down, he actually invites people in. And this isn't just true then. Even today, Jesus is inviting you into his presence. And his promise is that he will clear away whatever barriers stand in your way. I don't know what the barrier is for you between you and Jesus. But Jesus says, I'm going to flip those tables and I'm going to push those things out of the way. Jesus is going to say, I'm angry at what stands in the way between me and you. Maybe it's shame. Like there's a way that you see yourself that you hope nobody ever knows. And Jesus says, that infuriates me. And so he's flipping over that tail, pushing it aside, saying, I'm inviting you in. Or maybe it's guilt. Like you know some things you've said, some things you've done, and you regret them. And you don't know, and, and you don't know how to undo them, or not even that, you can't undo them. She says, well, I'm, I'm getting rid of that barrier. Or maybe like these people who are at the temple with Jesus, maybe there's some things some religious leaders did that make you want nothing to do with Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm going to shove aside those tables that have gotten in the way because of what those religious leaders said or done. He says, I want you in the family. Maybe it's hurt. Maybe it's a trauma. Something that shouldn't happen to any person. And you think, I don't, like, how could God? And Jesus says, it infuriates me too. He says, now, come. And he sits. You are invited into the house of prayer. You are invited into the presence of Jesus. Now, I want us to notice, though, that invitation is not just to the outsider. It's a warning to the insider. A warning to religious leaders. If you are not new to faith, the very, very likely, like you could fit into this category. You've been around the church. Maybe you've read the scriptures. You're familiar with them. We often would fall into the insider category. And the temptation can so easily within the church be that we want the kingdom. We just don't want the king. That we want the good things. We want like the blessings of God. We want the experience of being a follower of Jesus. We just don't want all the stuff that comes with it. We want blessing. We just don't want obedience. We want presence. We want God to be with us. We just don't want the practice. We want justice, but we don't want righteousness. 
But this is what happened with the temple. They, they saw the temple was pr- proof. Proof that they had God's stamp of approval. Proof that they were the chosen nation, that they were the ones that God loved. They, they loved the idea that they were blessed. And don't we want the same? To pray that God would bless us, our family, our nation. The problem is we want the blessing, but we don't want the obedience. We don't want the call to die to ourselves, to carry our cross. We want the presence of God. Like we want to know that God is with us, but we don't want to put into practice the things that Jesus did. Like we won't we don't want the disciplines. We even want we even want the justice, even outside the church. People want justice. Right? They want the oppressed to be fought for. The problem is, in our desires for justice, we want the kingdom, but we don't want the way the king has come to do it. We don't want it to be by his own righteousness and his own standards. The problem is, we can't become a house of prayer without the presence of the king. And so for the religious who get, who get the warning. Now, if they don't get the warning, they do what the religious did here. And they're just angry at the children. They're angry at the miracles. But for the religious who get the warning, there is an invitation in the kind of people we can become. And if you feel like you fall into both categories, that's good. Because we, on one hand, we are often the outsiders. Because of our own sin, because of our own doubts, because of our own hurt. We feel like the outsiders in the story who get invited in by Jesus. And at the same time, we can feel like the insider who's gone through the motions and created a kingdom that excludes those who don't know Jesus. And so the invitation then for us as followers of Jesus, you are invited to become a house of prayer for the nations. See, if you want to become the kind of person that God desires for you, it happens in the presence of God. It doesn't happen by you going through the motions. It doesn't happen by you doing all the right things. It happens by being in the presence of Jesus, that Jesus is doing the work on you. He is transforming you. He is shaping you. And if anything will prevent us from becoming a house of prayer, it's prayer itself. Prayer prevents us from only thinking about ourselves. Prayer forms us into people of love. Prayer slows us down long enough to see and experience the heart of God. And so here's my question for us. As we begin Holy Week, as we are reminded of the death and resurrection of Jesus, what would it look like to practice being in the presence of God? What would it look like for us to put into practice habits that help us know that the king is actually in our midst? To put, give ourselves tools to develop habits that focus us in on the presence of God instead of just what we want. And so what I want to do today is I want to give you four different prayer practices, tools that you could use to develop in your life the habit of prayer. These aren't, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just a way to, to, for me to help you um, because what I know about my own life is I've been told for a very long time that I should pray. The problem is it's really hard to actually do that. 
to find what works, what doesn't work, what habits and disciplines I should integrate into my life. And if I'm going to tell you that we should become a house of prayer for the nations, it is not that helpful if you don't also know how to become a house of prayer for the nations. And so I want to give you some tools that you could just think about trying over the course of the next week. Now with any of these tools... What we've been reminded in this series is these habits come from the life of Jesus. That when we look at the life of Jesus, we can see Jesus has habits of prayer. The conversations he has with his father. That these are habits integrated in his life. And for us, when we pray, it is just that. It's a habit that we are practicing. And practicing means we're not that good at it. We are learning. We are trying. And so we continue to practice because we are not good at it. One of the things I've learned about prayer is I really don't know as much as I think that I know about prayer. That people, that Christians have been praying far longer than I have been around. And so often I'll find myself now discovering new old ways of prayer. Things that are new to me that have been around for thousands of years that I never even realized were practices that can be integrated into my life. And so I want to share with you um, just four different ways that you could begin practicing prayer. The first is called the daily office. The daily office, another, another phrase or word used for the daily office would be fixed hour prayer. This is a bit more disciplined, regimented style of practicing prayer. For me, this is not um, at the top of my list when it comes to my prayer habits. The idea, though, was be, would be to orient and discipline your life around being in the presence of God. It actually has its roots in monastic communities. So if you've ever heard words like vigils or vespers, those are actually words that come um, from a very monastic tradition. And they actually oriented their daily schedule around having time in the presence of God. And so for our own life, like I'm not suggesting we go away to monastic communities or anything like that. Like that sounds awful. Um, But what I am suggesting, we can apply this this kind of practice into our own life by disciplining ourselves around having certain rhythms that stop us from doing what we're doing in order to be with God. And so the way I would do this, if I were you and wanted to integrate this, is you take out your phone, open your alarm app, and set three alarms. Set one in the morning, maybe 7 a.m., noon, and 7 p.m. And then when that alarm goes off, you stop whatever it is that you're doing so that you can spend some time with God. Now, in this practice, what I would encourage you is this is less about all the things you need to say in your time of prayer. The daily office is more of you stop what you're doing and then spend some time in silence. Now, if you've ever tried to spend time in silence and not really think about other things, it's nearly impossible. And so the way that that in monastic communities they have done this for thousands of years is they have used certain words or phrases to um, really help fix their minds and their hearts on Jesus. The phrase like, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. If you come from a more traditional background, that's what the, the kind of roots it has. That certain phrases help us focus in our times of prayer so that when our mind wanders, we can come back to something. So again, it's not like, oh, I need to pray for this, this, and this, but just, I'm just going to sit and be with Jesus. One student was asking his teacher, like, how am I supposed to do this? Uh, Like, I'm using the name Jesus as the word or phrase I come back to as I'm just trying to sit with Jesus. And he said, like, like in just, just a few minutes, I'm coming back to the name Jesus thousands of times. Like, I can't not think about things and just be with Jesus. And the teacher said, 
How incredible of a practice is that, that you have the opportunity in just five or ten minutes to return to Jesus so many times. So again, it's less about the things we say, but even disciplining ourselves to spend time every day in the presence of God. I would encourage you to use that time. Uh, maybe you read a psalm. Maybe you have a certain scripture that you memorized. This is also a great discipline to use written prayers. There are all kinds of prayers you can find throughout history that people have written prayers that you can reuse as a part of your own devotional life. The second practice that I want to highlight for you um, it can be referred to as contemplative or listening prayer. Now the idea of this, the word contemplation, um, is, is, is very much um, takes as borrowing from what the scriptures uses as the word is meditation. Now meditation in popular culture is about emptying your mind. In the scriptures, meditation is actually about filling your mind with the things of God. So it's, you're meditating on the person and work of Jesus. You're meditating on a characteristic of God. You're meditating on a particular scripture. Now the reason that I use the phrase listening is because for me, when you try to practice prayer this way, it's less about your, you speaking and more about paying attention to what the Holy Spirit is bringing to your heart and your mind. And so when I say listening, I'm li I'm, I simply mean pay attention. To pay attention to what's going on inside you, in your heart, in your mind. One of those ways is the practice of just being in silence. So using a word or phrase to just be still and be with God. Now using a word or phrase, it's not like a mantra to conjure up something. It's simply to help focus you on Jesus. Another ancient practice comes from um, a man by the name of Ignatius. Um, and he used a practice called the examine. Um, and I love this as a, as a listening to the Holy Spirit kind of practice. And so his encouragement would be, you do this at the end of your day. There are three steps. This, these are my words um, to describe those, not really his. But, but the steps would be, you just replay the day in your mind. So at the end of the day, when you're going to bed, like you're watching a movie in your mind, just replay the whole thing. Start, and then as you're watching the movie in your mind, this, this is a time of prayer, so you're trusting that, that God will bring certain things to your memory, and the things that he doesn't want to spend time with you about right now he's, are not going to come to your mind. God gave us our mind and our reason, our senses, and so he speaks to us through those through these. And so as we are then watching the day in our mind, you just note the, the strong feelings. So maybe there was a particular conversation at work, and there was a lot of tension and anxiety there. Just, all right, that, that's what I was feeling. Pay attention to that. Maybe there was a moment where, like, you were just filled with joy. That It was the highlight of your day. Pay attention to that. And then you simply give those feelings and emotions to Jesus. Say, say God, I'm terrified about this situation. I don't know how to handle it. I, I just want to give that to you. I don't know what to do. What, like, what do you want me to do? And then you just sit with that. You listen. Or there's a moment of joy and you just, you just, God brought that to your mind. God, thank you for doing that. Or maybe you even ask, like, God, can you show me where you were? This can be an incredibly healing thing if you've been through trauma to revisit a moment like that with the help of, of like, trusted friends or counselors to revisit some of those things and ask God, God, where were you? And you invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you and show you himself in the midst of even the most painful moments. In my own life, as I practice listening prayer, 
the, what I often do is I'll ask a question and I simply just pay attention. I'll ask God, who am I? And just pay attention to how, what comes to my heart and my mind as I ask God the question. Or I'll say, God, can you show me what you're proud of? And then pay attention to what comes to my mind about the things that God is proud of. If I am struggling with a sin or if there's a lie that I'm believing, a fear that I have, I'll even picture myself giving that to God and say, God, what do you want to do with those things? A third practice, and this one may be a little more familiar, is called intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is the type of prayer that you can practice where you are specifically praying for other people. So you are integrated in your life, not praying about your needs, but thinking of other people who you want to go before God and advocate for them. The scriptures tell us that God hears our prayers, that he responds to our prayers. And so my challenge for you with this one is, what if you integrated that practice into your life, that you, in an ongoing way, were often praying for other people? Maybe you're somebody who worries a lot. What if you turned your worry into intercession? That when you were worrying about somebody you loved, for a friend, a family member, what if you somehow shifted that and that became a prayer to God? God, can you show up for this person? God, can you speak for that person? God, can you heal that person? Or maybe you're somebody, maybe you have pictures on your fridge and you have friends or family members. What if those pictures became prompts for intercession? You don't even have to know what's going on in a person's life to intercede for them. You, you can trust that God already knows what's going on in their life. And so just pray for that person. Pray for the person that comes to your heart and your mind. And you don't know why you're praying for them. And just and trust God. Can you be with that person? Can you show up? Can you do what only you can do? Maybe it happens when you're on social media. That as you're going through stories online, maybe a certain name or a certain image shows up. And it prompts you to intercede for that person. What if we began to integrate habits in the things already present in our lives to be prompts to intercede for other people? The last practice I want to highlight is singing. Now the reason I want to highlight this one is I think we miss it easily in the church. There's been this odd thing that has happened within Christian churches that we've used words that aren't really the way the Bible teaches. For example, the word worship. When we use the word worship in the Christian church, we tend to mean the time of singing. The problem is the way the Bible describes worship is worship is anything that we do in response to God for who he is and what he's done. And so we can use a word worship to describe the time we're gathered together or the singing. The worship is far bigger than that, though. It includes the singing, but is far more wider reaching than that. At the same time, we also make this weird distinction between prayer and worship. Like if you think about, if you even think about, like if you were to describe to me how the service went today, you'd probably say, all right, well, we had opening prayer, then we had worship, then RJ prayed again, and then we had the message, and he's going to close in prayer, and then there's worship. As though the worship and prayer are different things. The way the scriptures describe prayer and the way the scriptures describe worship through song is the same thing. It is all prayer. And so perhaps for some of you, maybe some of you struggle with the discipline of the regimented schedule. Maybe some of you struggle with the being still and listening. Maybe some of you struggle with interceding. But maybe some of you, you're, something stirs inside of you when you are singing to Jesus. That's prayer. 
The Holy Spirit speaks and moves as we pray. The entire book of Psalms is a prayer book and a song book. It is both of those at the same time. God created us to enjoy music and to use music in our prayer life. And so what if we used music intentionally? See, one of the things I know about our worship leaders here is there are some incredible songs we sing that, that are birthed out of their own prayer life. That in their own prayers, as the Holy Spirit speaks to them, there are songs that we sing that haven't been sung before. And the reason those songs aren't written isn't just, the reason those songs are written isn't just because we like new things. It's because the Holy Spirit is giving to us songs, He's giving to us prayers that we can sing together. And sometimes you don't have the words. But sometimes these words come to us and they're attached to a melody and attached to music. Why? Because God has given us this incredible gift. And he's given it to us because he wants us to be a house of prayer. A house of prayer who prays in all kinds of different ways. And a house of prayer that exists not for ourselves, but for the nation. And so the way I want to end today is I want to end with a time of prayer. And I want to end by doing just what we just described, by giving you an opportunity to practice. And so during this time, you can kind of pick what works for you. If you are more of like a fixed hour, and I like memorized, written, written out um, prayers, like open up to the Psalms, find one, and just pray through the psalm. Or maybe you want to pray through the Lord's Prayer. Or you have another memorized prayer. If that's you, use that time and pray that and let the Holy Spirit work through that prayer. Maybe you want to practice in a more contemplative listening way. You want some space to just be, to be still. Maybe you want to use that time to, you can even use the prayer railing up front if you want. If you want to come and kneel and just be with Jesus. Maybe you, have some, maybe you want to ask Jesus a question and just pay attention and listen. What is the Holy Spirit bringing to your mind? Maybe there's even a situation, uh, a hurt, a pain that you want to revisit in your mind. and Just ask God, where were you? Use this time to do that. Maybe you have somebody on your heart, on your mind, and you just want God to do something for that person. I invite you to use that time to intercede for other people. And as we do that, we have an opportunity to sing. Because God has given us the gift of music. Not as though it's something different than all of our prayers. It's another way we are invited to pray. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to become a house of prayer for the nations. I pray that you would form us in the people you want us to be. Pray that you would help us in this moment be aware that you are here with us, that you are present. Pray that you help us to be still, to know that you are God. I pray that you would hear our prayers. Pray that you would speak to us. 